Good evening. Opening statements are coming tomorrow in the trial of Derek Chauvin, accused in the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. An alarming rise in intimate partner violence under COVID and union members get vaccinated in New York City. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Sunday, March 28, 2021. Opening arguments are set to begin tomorrow in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, who faces murder charges in the death last May of a black man, George Floyd. He's pleaded not guilty to second degree murder, third degree murder and second degree manslaughter charges in the death of George Floyd, who was 46. If convicted, Chauvin could face years in prison. The panel, which includes the three alternates, includes six white women, three white men, three black men, one black woman and two multiracial women. That's according to the reports from the court. The founder of the National Action Movement is the Reverend Al Sharpton. The question is, one, the evidence against Derek Shaman and this particular case that is outlined by the prosecutor and whether or not the prosecutor can just present the facts. And I think the facts speak for themselves. But the overall case is whether uh, the United States has the capacity to deal with a white law enforcement officer when they kill a black member of the black community or black American. We are looking at the fact that in the case of Eric Garner, where there was a tape, it never even went to trial. They wouldn't even prosecute the policemen. When we look at the case of Michael Brown and Ferguson, no indictment. We look at cases all over the country, going back to Mia Rice, uh, Breonna Taylor, all over the country. So really this case will culminate not only the evidence against Derek Shaven, which must be independently looked at by this jury, but it must also be looked at by Americans saying when you have facts this clear and you laid out in a very methodical way, can this country's judicial system, justice system, convict a white officer for killing a black man or black woman? Does our lives have any value at the hands of law enforcement, whatever the circumstances? That's what we're looking at in this trial. The city of Minneapolis agreed recently to pay Floyd's relatives $27 million in damages to settle their claims of abuse in the case. And WBAI News will be closely following this trial as it begins with opening statements tomorrow. And Chinese officials briefed diplomats Friday on the ongoing research into the origin of COVID-19 ahead of the expected release of a long-awaited report from the World Health Organization. The United States and others have raised questions about Chinese influence and the independence of the findings, and China has accused critics of politicizing a scientific study. Experts examined four possible ways the virus got to Wuhan. They are a bat carrying the virus infected a human, a bat infected an intermediate mammal that spread it to a human, shipments of cold or frozen food, and a laboratory that researches viruses in Wuhan. Former CDC head Robert Redfield speculated last week on CNN that COVID-19 came from a lab, but Dr. Anthony Fauci says the virus surprised the world because it was already here before it was discovered. You think about the possibilities of how this virus appeared in the human population Obviously, there are a number of theories. The issue that would have someone think it's possible to have escaped from a lab would mean that it essentially entered the outside human population already well adapted to humans, suggesting that it was adapted in the lab. However, the alternative explanation, which most public health individuals go by, 
is that this virus was actually circulating in China, likely in Wuhan, for a month or more before they were clinically recognized at the end of December of 2019. If that were the case, the virus clearly could have adapted itself to a greater efficiency of transmissibility over that period of time up to and at the time it was recognized. So Dr. Redfield was mentioning that he was giving an opinion as to a possibility. But again, there are other alternatives, others that most people hold by. Dr. Anthony Fauci, officials say the WHO report on the origins of the virus is due out as soon as it's been fact-checked and translated. Advocates and public health officials testified at a House Education and Labor Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Human Services hearing last week on efforts to prevent domestic violence. Witnesses described the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on women and families, resulting in an increase in domestic violence cases. Topics included barriers to services for African-American and Native communities. One focus in the aftermath of two high-profile mass shootings in Atlanta and Boulder, Colorado, was the role of guns in domestic violence. Georgia Representative Lucy McBath. The Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence, about 4.5 million women in the United States have been threatened with a gun and nearly 1 million women have been shot or shot at by an intimate partner. Women are also five times more likely to be murdered when their abuser has access to firearms. And in my home state of Georgia, 73% of reported domestic violence-related deaths were committed by firearms in 2019 alone. Uh, Dr. Miller, my questions are for you. Um, could you please speak to how these efforts to reduce gun violence and murder are such an intrinsic part of a comprehensive plan to prevent intimate partner violence? And the chief of adolescent medicine at Pittsburgh Children's Hospital is Dr. Elizabeth Miller. So we know, right, that intimate partner violence is inextricably linked with gun violence and violent loss in our communities. And when I talk about violence prevention, we were talking about trauma-sensitive school practices, for example, or positive parenting strategies, ways to create safe and supportive environments. Those kinds of cross-cutting violence prevention strategies where we bring in our faith-based organizations, our healthcare systems, our community organizations, those cross-cutting prevention will also reduce gun violence and murder. And Native American communities are some of the most hard hit by domestic violence that's been often ignored or not treated seriously. The co-chair of the La Jolla Band of Luis Enyeo Indians is Wendy Schlater. If you called the sheriffs for a domestic violence call, you'd get an eight-hour response or no response at all. And that, in turn, led to more abuse for the victim who made the call for help, right? There have been incidences in our community where families have tried to intervene with, you know, uh, beating up the victim's perpetrator. But that hasn't resulted in anything uh, healthy. Uh, that wasn't a, a good solution for that. Um, so with our program and our services, we've been able to build relationships with local law enforcement, build our own tribal law enforcement program as well, and then really establish a life-saving link between the victim when they pick up the call to, to make for help. And Wendy Slater is co-chair of the La Jolla Band. The reason for the poor response, according to Dr. Elizabeth Miller, was a failure to be ready for the unexpected. 
what we are learning is that we were woefully unprepared for this and we can do so much better because it turns out that even in my city of Pittsburgh, intimate partner violence, child abuse was not part of our emergency preparedness plan. That's changing, right? Because moving and coming out of this pandemic, we recognize that victim services have to be much more robust. We have to be able to much more nimbly respond um, because suddenly, you know, congregate living in shelter was not a safe option. Pediatrician Dr. Elizabeth Miller is Chief of Adolescent Medicine at Pittsburgh Children's Hospital. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Mayor de Blasio paid a visit to the vaccination hub at City Field in Queens Saturday, supporting members of the city's largest public union getting their shot. The mayor was joined by Henry Garrido. He's the executive director of the D.C. 37 union to tour and observe vaccinations at the site. The union worked with the city to plan the D.C. 37 vaccination day, which encouraged all eligible members of the union to receive the shot. Garrido had this to say. My community, that community was devastated as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic has been devastated and still suffering from many of its uh, effects. And many of the city workers you see around here that are cleaning the parks, whom I saw, you can see the police officers, the civil servants that are here have been the true heroes of this tragedy. And many of them have given her li- their lives to continue to provide services for New Yorkers. I want to thank the Mets. True fact, even though I live in the Bronx, I am a Mets fan. Okay? Um, That's not an easy thing to say. (laughs) So when I walk around with my Mets gear, you know, there's always a problem in the supermarket in the Bronx. Many city workers who are really scared. And as we reopen the city, as we begin to fully reopen the services, it is imperative that they get vaccinated. I started myself because as a leader, I did not think it would be fair for me to ask my members to get vaccinated without doing it myself. Uh, Yesterday, I had my second shot with the leader of 32BJ. Thank you. You made it. And I feel fine. I feel I feel great. I feel excited. And for the members who are going to be able to vaccinate today, I would say we're excited for them as well. Henry Garrido is executive director of DC 37. And more city news. For the first time in nearly two years, Cardinal Timothy Dolan delivered Palm Sunday Mass in front of parishioners at St. Patrick's Cathedral. The church allowed 50 percent of the worshipers they normally would for the service. Social distancing, mask wearing and other safety protocols were enforced. Last year, the cathedral and other churches around the state were closed for public mass because of the pandemic and instead streamed online. Parishioners said they're happy to be back in person. And in more COVID-19 news. New York City Public Advocate Jumani Williams and New York City Council Member Mark Levine are calling on the city and state to delay the decision to reopen the city. With infectious disease expert Dr. Gounder, they lay out an alarming picture of the risks posed by COVID-19 variants. Linda Perry reports. New York physician epidemiologist Dr. Celine Gounder, a member of the Biden-Harris COVID-19 Advisory Board, has a message for New Yorkers. She says we need to be more patient before we reopen. She says we have the spread of COVID-19 variants, the B117 from the UK, which has been shown to be more infectious and more deadly. It prompted the UK to shut down in the winter and represents about 20 to 30 percent of cases of COVID across the country. 
country. It's quite common, she says, in New York City. She also says that we have our own homegrown variant, the B1526 variant, which seems to have emerged out of the Washington Heights area, which is now the predominant strain in New York City, and it appears to be a more infectious strain. She also warns about the Brazil and South African strains of the virus. In Brazil, the P1 and the South African strain, the B1351, seem to evade our immune responses to natural infection. People are being reinfected, and there's a trend towards becoming more resistant to vaccine-induced immunity. Dr. Gounder. This is important because if you allow the virus to continue to spread, when it spreads from person to person, every time it does so, it has the opportunity to mutate. And so if you already have variants that are relatively more resistant to vaccine-induced immunity and you continue to allow those to spread, you may well find yourself in a place where they become fully resistant to vaccine-induced immunity. So we're quite concerned about that scenario. And so when we say we're trying to protect our vaccines, uh, in the meantime, while we're trying, you know, trying to get people vaccinated, um, what we're really, what we really mean by that is we want to quash transmission until people are protected with the current vaccines so that vaccine evading variants do not emerge. Dr. Gounder points to northwestern Brazil, the city of Manaus. 75% in the city were infected during the early time of the pandemic, and many thought a second wave was impossible. But the P1 variant caused a massive emergence of the cases, so people were not immune after the first infection. This resulted in hospitals being overrun. They ran out of oxygen and had to build vertical graves in their cemeteries because bodies were piling up. The variant, she says are very real threats that need to be taken seriously. In terms of our um, case rates in, in this country, we have been at a plateau for a while now, which is also highly concerning. Whenever we or other countries have found themselves in a plateau, inevitably that has been followed by a resurgence, not cases going back down again. And this is precisely the pattern uh, that has been seen in Europe most recently. I mentioned uh, the UK having to reinstitute strict measures over the winter holidays. That has been followed by France and Italy, where the B117 UK variant has spread. Uh, And most recently, Germany has announced a five-day lockdown over the Easter holiday uh, to address uh, this resurgence. So we have, in general, in the U.S., trended about three to four weeks behind the Europeans in terms of our resurgences. And so we are very concerned that we are on the verge of of our own. Dr. Gounder says this is not the time for reopening when we are on the verge of another potential surge with more infection variants of the virus surging. So it's sort of like uh, taking your foot off the brake before you've put the car in the park. We need to go just a little bit longer, get all of the especially high-risk people vaccinated, which is your elderly and your people with chronic medical conditions and those who are in occupations where they're at especially high risk of being exposed and infected. And once, once we can get there, we're in a much better position to relax our, our various different public health measures. But in the meantime, the measures that really concern me the most are the fact that people are not consistently masking as they had been earlier in the pandemic. Masks are your best personal protection at this point in time until you can be vaccinated uh, and until the, the vast majority of us can be vaccinated. 
And then in terms of uh, reopening restaurants, indoor dining, bars, gyms, uh, this is highly concerning because we have seen over the course of the pandemic that these are the highest risk locations for spread to occur. Uh, I'm also concerned about the reopening of, of large gatherings like weddings. Again, th these have been super spreader events. Regarding schools, according to the infectious disease expert, there hasn't been much spread of the virus. It's been, by and large, adult to adult. Dr. Gounder says as long as there are basic protections in place, such as masking, reasonable ventilation, testing, that's been able to control the spread, a return to in-person learning, she says, is safe. But there needs to be pause in some of the other activities for another month or two. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Linda. On Saturday night, put the finishing touches on a deal to legalize cannabis products for those 21 and older, while allowing adults to maintain up to three mature marijuana plants in their home per person. The measure is expected to generate millions of dollars in revenue for New York and boost programs for communities affected by severe drug laws of the past. The bill's approval will make New York the latest state in the nation to allow adult use marijuana and opening up one of the largest markets. It was a torturous journey. The New York State Director of the Drug Policy Alliance is Melissa Moore. She says the bill is a foregone conclusion and marks far-reaching changes in America's attitudes towards drugs. It's really about the sponsors and the folks within the three-way negotiations really wanting to get every detail right. And so they're, from what I understand, down to the last few sentences in terms of being able to craft the, the deal around what legalization will look like. But it's being based on the marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, which you know we've supported for years, that the Start Smart Coalition across New York has been rallying for and and pushing for many years now. Um, so of course, you know, waiting to see that final language. But my understanding is that uh, what's being negotiated right now um, tracks very closely with what advocates have been calling for. What will this brave new world of legal marijuana in New York State? I mean, the land of the Rockefeller drug laws. For far too long, there's been a tremendous amount of hypocrisy around marijuana enforcement in New York and a ridiculous degree of structural racism and just straight up racist policy making and enforcing. We'll be turning the page, but we can't just act as though that didn't happen in New York. It's not enough to just turn to the next page in the book and say, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. There really has to be restitution for the communities that have been devastated by decades of racist policy and racist enforcement. What we've been calling for within the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act is community reinvestment is actually ensuring that there is a lockbox of a percentage of the cannabis tax revenue, a significant amount that would go back to the communities that have been the ones bearing the brunt of this policy and this enforcement for so long and that are also now bearing the brunt of COVID on top of that and the additional economic vulnerability that comes along with these compounding factors. Will the average marijuana smoker be able to grow their own marijuana plants in their house? The legislature won out on that one. It sounds from um, some statements that Senator Kruger has made and Majority Leader Crystal Peoples-Stokes that there will be provisions allowing for home cultivation um, and making sure that people won't face um, you know, penalties for being able to grow you know, the strains that work for them, especially for patients. That's really important from an access and affordability standpoint, um, but that other New Yorkers would be able to avail themselves of that as well and to be able to grow in a, in a safe and secure location.
there's been a lot of moves now towards copying other states as far as legalizing psychedelics, mushrooms. I don't know if other, which is already taking place in a lot of different places around the country. And, and of course, people are looking towards Oregon, which is just legalized small amounts of all drugs. The drug war has failed at its purported purpose, but unfortunately has been far too effective in terms of providing the justification that law enforcement has used to target communities of color and especially low-income communities all across New York and the rest of the country as well. It's important to note that New York is in the middle of an overdose crisis right now that has been going on for years and years. We've lost tens of thousands of New Yorkers just under the time that Governor Cuomo has been in office, and that's ramped up even more. The, the overdose rates have skyrocketed during the pandemic. And so we're clear that the approach that so far has been taken to, to deal with substance use and this criminalization approach that touches people from the criminal legal system, but also so many other facets of people's life. The fact that somebody can be blocked out from being able to access stable housing or decent employment or have opportunities for higher education can have their family torn apart because of child welfare allegations alone, not even anything demonstrable. I think all points to the fact that the drug war has really contaminated so many aspects of people's lives. Are we going to change that aspect of it where it's just poisoned the entire justice system? With the DA in Boston announcing just, I think, a few days ago that there was contamination and there there were faulty drug tests in like tens of thousands of cases there that would be implicated under that and they're going to be now under review. It's clear that there are ramifications far beyond just the drug policy realm and well into the rest of the criminal legal space and so many other aspects of people's lives as well. There are administrative systems that need to make real deep changes based on this because the drug war has contaminated those very systems to their core as well. Melissa Moore is New York State Director of the Drug Policy Alliance. And that's some of the news for Sunday, March 28th, 2021. The news was produced by Linda Perry, our engineer is Max Schmid. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News. Thanks for listening. W.